This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. This is a new episode of the COVID-19 podcast series, focusing on Asian countries' responses to the pandemic. My name is Silja Keva, and I'm joined today with two of my Japan specialist colleagues from the Center of East Asian Studies at the University of Turku. Dr. Kamila Tspanska is here with me to discuss the responses of the Japanese NGOs to the pandemic at the national level, and also introduce the general challenges that the COVID-19 has had on NGOs' work around the world. Welcome, Camilla. Thank you very much. It's good to be back. Then with Dr. Joko Demelius, we will zoom in on the grassroots level impact of COVID-19, discussing the responses and challenges of Japanese civil society organizations and their work with the socially disadvantaged. Welcome, Joko. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming for both Camilla and Joko. So this podcast is actually a follow-up of an earlier podcast we recorded together in June, covering COVID-19's impact on Japanese society. Now almost five months have passed and social challenges are gradually becoming more difficult, not only among real individuals, but also among the civil society organizations, trying to alleviate some of the hardships experienced by the people. Let's start with you, Camilla. So during our last meeting, we discussed the responses of Japanese central and local governments to the first wave of COVID-19 pandemic. But the ongoing crisis has been a challenge not only to the governments, but also civil societies across the globe, including NGOs, other non-profit organizations and community responders. Camilla, what have been the challenges with which NGOs had to grapple worldwide in the wake of pandemic? Uh, yes, Celia, thank you. Similarly to those working in other sectors of economy, many professionals employed in NGOs have been experiencing increasing difficulties due to a drastic change of circumstances brought by the current pandemic. With streams of NGO funding running dry or becoming severely depleted and opportunities for fundraising limited, NGOs experience a downward turn in their financial situation. Many organizations had to dismiss some of their staff, implement furlough arrangements, reduce salaries and suspend hiring. Yes, in May this year, Oxfam, a well-known British NGO with branches in multiple countries, announced that it needs to cut down the number of employees. The organization decided to gradually withdraw from 18 countries and was planning to make redundant nearly 1,500 people. Yes, that is a very high-profile example of what was happening. Of course, the situation is not uniform across the board, with practitioners in some regions being impacted to a greater extent than the others. Those working in development sector in Africa and in the Middle East expressed a significantly greater level of insecurity concerning the future prospects of organizations for which they were working than those in Europe and North America. The pandemic has also revealed that many NGOs did not have sufficient contingency plans on how to continue their operations in such exceptional circumstances. How to maintain communication, for example, how to ensure personal security of field staff conducting operations on the ground, especially for those heavily involved in operations in communities. What do you do when the infrastructure for remote working is missing? How do you continue to operate while travel and access are restricted? 
Well, and all these questions, of course, need to be answered urgently in this current situation, right? Exactly. And long term, a significant worry is that we can expect a substantial decrease in foreign aid budgets as donors are turning their gaze inwards and focus on the needs of domestic populations and funding economic recovery schemes. This means that some of development gains achieved in the recent years may be lost. So all in all, there will be more humanitarian and development emergencies to tackle with less means to do it. The specter of underfunding will further weaken international and domestic NGOs' ability to respond to the needs of vulnerable communities and individuals. Okay, let's turn to Japanese NGOs for a short while. What were the challenges that Japanese NGOs faced in this unprecedented situation? Right. So non-governmental actors in Japan have been facing the same challenges as their colleagues abroad. One of the main issues have been has been declining funding and difficulties in fundraising. Falling donations caused that some of actors were simply not able to fulfill their mission or had to scale back support that they were offering prior to the pandemic to vulnerable populations. Well, what about donations from Japanese business sector? What happened to those? Well, in the worsening economic climate during the pandemic, many business donors decided to either scale back their donations or if they decided to donate at all, then those donations were earmarked for domestic projects. So those projects that would be carried out in Japan. Consequently, there was less funds to maintain or start new projects abroad. Also worryingly, we have seen reports that some of the programs operated by Japanese NGOs abroad and supported by Japanese foreign development aid funds had to be put on hold, for example, due to local or national lockdowns, and their completion will be delayed. This means that in some cases, NGOs will have to, quite unexpectedly, shoulder part of the costs for ongoing projects themselves which will put further strain on their finances as they struggle to get through COVID-19 crisis. Well, but have Japanese NGOs managed to launch new overseas operations to help tackle COVID-19 under these deteriorating conditions? Yes, indeed, they, they have. Some of Japanese NGOs have provided support to communities fighting with COVID-19 abroad. Just to give some examples... Uh, in spring 2020, food packages and hygiene sanitation kits were delivered to vulnerable people living in Mansehra and Haripur districts in Pakistan uh, by organization called Children Without Borders and then the Association for Aid and Relief Japan, respectively. The support was provided to people with disabilities, widows, orphans and vulnerable families, other vulnerable families. Japanese NGOs made efforts to improve hygiene in schools for girls so that these institutions continue to be open. They also run hygiene awareness campaigns among local populace and in cooperation with local NGOs delivered personal protection equipment to several hospitals that were treating COVID patients. Another example involves Shanti Volunteer Association. This organization engaged in delivering food and hygiene products to people in Nangarhar province in Afghanistan and was trying to raise awareness on how to prevent infections among the local populace. In certain parts of the province, internally displaced persons, as well as migrants who returned from neighboring countries such as Pakistan, are present. 
With little jobs available for casual day laborers, lockdowns in place that made it hard to travel in search of employment, and many people being illiterate, the measures implemented by the NGO were meant to provide necessary assistance to those especially vulnerable members of local community. So displaced communities and refugees are one of the most vulnerable groups in the current pandemic. Yes, indeed. In Southeast Asia, concerns emerge in regards to the situation of Rohingya refugees. Japanese NGOs were present in the refugee camp in the Cox Bazar district in Bangladesh, where many refugees who fled Myanmar shelter at the current moment. We have there well over 800,000 people. World Vision Japan and Peace Wins Japan were running an infection awareness programs among the refugees and local community in order to prevent the spread of COVID-19 and also to target misinformation about the virus. World Vision has also planned setting up additional water sanitation and hygiene amenities in the area. Well, what about the domestic front then? Since the 311 triple disaster in 2011, Japanese development and humanitarian NGOs have become increasingly active in providing relief in the case of domestic disasters. Can you tell something more about this? Yes, of course. And yes, they have. We could see that on the examples of responses to the 2016 Kumamoto earthquakes, Typhoon Hagibis, and the current pandemic. In case of COVID-19 response, Japanese NGOs were active in provision of hygiene products, PPEs, and food assistance to domestic recipients. The beneficiaries included members of risk groups and institutions that support them, such as elderly care facilities and medical facilities. For instance, Peace Wins Japan provided masks to elderly care institutions and smaller health practices in Tokyo at the time when access to PPEs was hindered due to a surge in demand for them across the world. Another example are activities of Association for Aid and Relief Japan, focusing on people with disabilities. Here, in addition to donating PPEs and sanitary products, the organization was trying to improve remote work conditions for those employed in facilities that help people with disabilities, so that these institutions continue to operate and support those who depend on them. And this took the form of donations of information and communication equipment. Okay, what kind of impact has this increasing domestic engagement had on the NGO sector or people's awareness of this? Right. So domestic engagement offers an opportunity for NGOs to foster contacts and relationships between them on the one hand side and local authorities and the public on the other. This is an important trust building measure, as still today, many officials and ordinary Japanese people are not familiar with what NGOs are and what they do. More often than not, they are mistaken for volunteer organizations rather than professional agents that engage in humanitarian and development work. So increasing exposure of local authorities and Japanese citizens to the work done by Japanese NGO practitioners is of key importance in building domestic constituencies that will support NGOs and their work in the future. Thank you, Camilla. Naturally, development and humanitarian NGOs were not the only civil society actors that responded to the COVID-19 crisis in Japan. Let's next take a closer look at the grassroots level. Yoko, what happens to a person who can no longer support himself or herself due to the reduced income since the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic? Thank you, Celia. Um, I must say that the intentions of the government were pretty good. 
Individuals who were suddenly confronted with a significant reduction of income were theoretically entitled to some types of funds. For example, the relief funds of 100,000 yen was designed to cover the initial shock caused by reduced economic activities due to the pandemic to every resident in Japan, including foreign nationals with a valid resident visa of medium to long-term stay. And for small and medium business owners, the government also prepared subsidies programs for employers for a one-time payment of maximum of 2 million yen. But here comes the reality check. The distinct characteristics of the damages caused by the pandemic are related to the fact that it was unpredictable, long-lasting, and recurrent. As I briefly mentioned in the last podcast, in reality, many vulnerable people who do not have registered addresses had a hard time accessing these funds. Now, what happens if the situation of a significantly reduced income really affects individuals' livelihood? This is when the question of Japan's safety net becomes important. In short, unlike the context of Nordic welfare system, Japan has a very fragile system. Since the welfare in Japan is geared toward the population's stable employment and it's financed by employers and employees, not the state, And in reality, for the working population, a little less than 80% of men and 40% of women have contracts that have the component of safety net. Also, when you hear that a third of the national budget goes into the welfare-related expenditure, it feels like a lot. But we must remember that the tax rates in Japan are quite low, unlike the Nordic countries. In terms of what the country generates that is measured by GDP, Japan's expenditure on welfare is about 24% of its GDP. And if you look at other countries such as France, Finland, and Denmark, the rates are about the same, roughly about 33% of their GDP. Because Japan's super-aging society sucks up most of its expenditure, the funds really available for the safety net in the current pandemic's context is rather limited. Now, here we're talking about a sudden loss of income or a job. To give you another perspective, Finland's unemployment expenditure is... 2.3% of its GDP, whereas Japan only spends about 0.17%. Finland spends about 14 times of what Japan spends. The unemployment rate in Japan is quite low, but about 40% of the existing contracts are what you call irregular temporary contracts, which are rather precarious. So if a person can no longer afford a rent or a person has a risk of losing housing, the first funds that is available is 
local municipalities, social welfare councils funds. There, individuals can borrow some short-term funds, but it's meant as emergency funds, and as soon as the borrowers are back on track, they must start paying back to the funds. The return period is usually within two years. Currently, since the pandemic, many local governments' welfare councils funds are completely dried up. There is the absolute last resort called the livelihood assistance funds. In reality, there is a very stringent screening process and the rejection rates are very high. For example, individuals may not own a house or a car and the saving in the bank account must be less than 130,000 yen and so on. There are a lot of restrictions. Because of the social stigma attached to the recipients of the livelihood assistance, the application rates are also very low. The provision of the funds is not geared toward individuals, but toward households. So individuals in financial trouble are first advised to ask for help from family members and relatives. This is often a very humiliating process, and individuals often take desperate measures to avoid the situation of getting these funds. And here comes the importance of MPOs, civil society, and grassroots organizations in Japan. They are filling the gap of what the public offices cannot offer to people in communities. Okay, how do these NPOs and grassroots organizations then function for the socially disadvantaged? The most important things that NPOs and civil society organizations offer is removing the elements of shame, fear, and powerlessness. The material conditions of poverty are one thing, but we shouldn't underestimate the experience of exclusion, loss of social capital, dignity, and so on that comes with the loss of material and financial comfort. The humiliating process of receiving the public funds is also quite damaging to individuals. It makes them powerless, whereas NPOs and civil society organizations provide them not only with material items such as food, household items, and sometimes even shelters, but they also take care of the soft elements of support which the public offices cannot provide, such as the component of social capital, networks, bridging individuals to a better and independent track, psychological support, giving them a sense of empowerment rather than making them feel powerless. For example, helping out Single mother households in terms of food and households item is important, but their children are very often unattended at night. And organizations such as kids cafes and other groups feed them nutritious food, but also supervise unattended children at night. So they don't get isolated, give them comfort and help them do some homework and even give them a sense that they are not alone. 
Well, how did the situation change for MPOs and grassroots organizations since the pandemic? What did they observe? The first thing these help organizations noticed was that people who didn't used to be in the category of the socially disadvantaged had started to seek for help. The economic impact of the pandemic put many people into a dire situation very quickly. However, there was a time lag between the initial shock and the time they actually started to search for assistance. This means that people were trying to make it with their savings. And for many of them, it was an unexpected circumstance. Unexpected means that there was a general lack of public knowledge about the available help, both from the public offices, local governments, and civil society and grassroots organizations. To give you some examples, The construction industry often had rather precarious employment contracts, which are often limited in the time period, or day labor, which is based on an hourly wage. On top of it, they usually live in a company's dormitory at the construction site. Due to the pandemic, some of those dorms had to close, and many of them are pushed out of their jobs and housings at the same time. Now. These people try to take other positions, which also have precarious conditions. So certain sectors, such as construction and the low-skilled factory work, saw intensified competitions. This also caused confrontational situations among workers, and people were competing for limited positions. The exclusionist sentiment is quite common these days in Japanese society in general due to the neoliberal idea of self-responsibility, jiko sekinen, which tells the population that individuals must take care of their own lives and the state or the employers will no longer take care of them. The general mood of the society is quite hostile because of it. Well, what were the challenges these organizations then themselves faced since the pandemic? You can imagine that an increased volume of requests for help is the first biggest challenge. At the same time, because of the fear of infections, fewer people and volunteers are available for supportive activities. Some church and grassroots organizations temporarily canceled their services. In terms of events and service opportunities, fewer venues were allowed in public space for supportive activities. Many occasions for these types of help are strongly contact-based and labor-intensive. So it's very challenging at the moment to cope with the risk of infection, at the same time securing the ways to reach people who need help. And last but not least, Less funds are available because everybody, donors, both at the individual and organization levels, are facing a difficult situation. As Camila explained earlier, it's a major challenge for MPOs and civil society organizations to maintain these operations. Thank you, Yoko, for your interesting insight over the grassroots level impacts of COVID-19. 
Thank you. And thank you also to you, Camilla, for joining me today in this discussion. Thank you. And it was my pleasure. This was all from the Nordic Asia podcast for now. Until next time. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.